Hey everyone, just a quick content warning before we begin this episode. We're going to be talking about mature content as well as topics of abuse. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about the Great Sex Rescue. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. Hey, Amber. Hey, John. And Grace Emmett, who recently passed her Viva in New Testament at King's College London. Hey, Grace. Hey, John. And Grace Singaleng Ng, who is a PhD candidate in education at Biola University. Hey, Grace. Hey, John. And Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in New Testament at Trinity College, Melbourne. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. And Dr. Logan Williams, who teaches languages at Durham University. Hey, Logan. Hey, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Sheila Ray Gregoire, who is a well-known speaker, blogger, podcaster, and author of several books, including the recently released The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught, and How to Recover What God Intended, published with Baker. Thanks so much for joining us, Sheila. Thanks, Thanks, John. John. It's great to be here. So how about we begin by hearing about some of these lies that we've been taught? All right. Well, what we did to figure out what the lies were was we did the largest survey that has ever been done of Christian women's sexual and marital satisfaction. So we surveyed 20,000 women, huge number, um, asked them at least 130 questions. Some got more. If you were divorced, you got more, remarried, whatever. So lots and lots of questions. Took 25 minutes huge reams of data. And what we were looking for was, are there certain teachings in the evangelical world, which if you believe them, or if you were taught them, your marital satisfaction or your sexual satisfaction plummet. And we certainly found that there were roughly five things that are just totally toxic. Here's a really typical one. Sex is something that men need and women don't. Okay. Lots of people believe that that's what we're taught in large numbers, like uh, um, in lots and lots of resources, love and respect, for instance, says, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. And that kind of thinking is repeated in so many evangelical books, you know, or um, another belief, all men struggle with lust. It is every man's battle. (laughs) Everyone knows that one. Right. And And again, if women believe that, or if they're taught it, your trust in your husband goes down, the chance you're going to get aroused during sex goes down, orgasm rates go down, marital sex satisfaction goes down, just all kinds of really super nasty stuff. Thanks, Sheila. Um, I'm really interested in this. So when I, when I was a teenager, um, Josh Harris brought out his book on purity culture. uh, When Mm -hmm. uh, was it? I I kissed dating goodbye. Um, And as an Australian um, the whole concept was somewhat foreign to me, given that uh, you might say that Australians are serial monogamy, monogamous daters. We don't do the multiple dating thing that um, that seemed to be described in the book. Uh, and yet at the same time, he seemed to be picking up on some of these threads that actually, you know, purity was there because women have, uh, have sexual interests as well. Uh, and that he seemed to be undermining some of some of these tropes, but at the same time, uh, seemed to set up another one of the the lies. That I think you explore in your, in the book. Uh, I'm interested in your reflections on that 
um, as from from your role and from the perspective of your survey as well? Yeah, we ne- we measured a number of different purity culture beliefs, and the one that stood out the most was the idea that boys will push girls' sexual boundaries. Um, that's something that was taught a lot. Uh, for instance, and for young women only, um, a huge bestseller in the early 2000s by Shanti Feldon that told teenage girls, she did a survey of, of teenage boys, and she said that survey found that 82% of boys feel little ability or little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. So if you don't want to go all the way, it's better to not even start. And this is the kind of thing that girls were taught over and over again in Brio magazine by Focus on the Family. Um, yeah, a lot of the women watching or <laughs> listening are nodding. Yeah, you remember, right? I remember that. <laughs> you know, Brio, it, it talked about making out, like if you make out, that's a sin and you might not be Christian anymore and you need to repent of it and all of this sort of thing. But the idea is the girl's purity is based on what they do with their bodies. And, and it's not too far a leap to also say that girls purity is based on what other people do with our bodies. (laughs) So other people can take our purity from us. And that's what happened to so many women is we grew up feeling like boys are going to push our sexual boundaries. So we need to be the gatekeeper. We call that the gatekeeper message. And if you're in a makeout situation and you're 16 years old, (laughs) What the guy is thinking then is, oh, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. What she's thinking is, is he breathing too hard? Do I need to stop him yet? Is this getting too hot? You know, should I stop now? Should I stop now? Should I stop now? (laughs) And she's never relaxing. Now, I'm not arguing that we should all make out and relax. That's not my point. My point is that we have trained girls to get so hypervigilant that they never just get to experience. And yet we've trained boys to just experience. And the problem with that hypervigilance is it doesn't stop when you get married. And that's what we found is that um, girls who believe this, that boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. So you need to be the gatekeeper. He's the accelerator. You're the brakes. That doesn't stop just because you have a wedding ring on. And so girls have a really difficult time stopping putting the brakes on. And just letting themselves relax and just letting themselves feel. And so I, I, I do believe in a biblical sexual ethic, but I think we need to figure out how to talk about this in a much healthier way. Well, it makes sense, too, if you're you're thinking about that as a woman. You're kind of ha- continually having this out-of-body gaze kind of experience mm-hmm. where you're looking on the situation like, is this okay? Should I stop it? Should I redirect? You know, and you're not immediately present in that situation in the same way. So there's kind of a breach in the immediacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our uh, focus groups, people, people, they said that it felt like they were judging themselves, just like you just said, or even one person said spectatoring. I felt like it was all spectatoring and a number of people really resonated with that too. And that's very difficult to turn off. We, we also looked at this idea that the sexual progression has been lost because of this whole idea that you can't kiss until the wedding. And then as soon as you're married, you do everything. <laughs> and so women never get to learn to listen to their own bodies. And so, again, I, I think it's instead of telling people, wait until you're married to have sex, we need to say, you know, wait until you're married, but then don't have sex until you're aroused. 
like figure out the arousal piece. Don't figure out the intercourse piece, figure out the arousal piece. That's really the important thing. That's really interesting. Thank you. And um, I guess that kind of mirrors wider tropes in society about kind of how the onus is on women to sort of police their bodies and things. Um, I guess sort of sticking with the purity culture stuff, we mentioned Joshua Harris's book. It's kind of interesting seeing his, I guess, reflections on that later in life and having had quite a lot of negative criticism about it and some of the impacts of that book. I'm just curious to hear kind of what your thoughts are on his more recent reflections on, I guess, particularly I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I watched the documentary, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and I thought that was wonderful. I thought that he, um, I'm really, really impressed that he is willing to do that. I know he's gone through quite a bit since, and he and his wife, ex-wife, have gone through quite a bit since, and I haven't seen a recent interview, so I can't comment on anything more recent. But the fact that someone who wrote such a runaway bestseller is willing to acknowledge that it did some harm is tremendous. And what we would like to see from The Great Sex Rescue is other authors do the same thing. Because what we found, and we actually measured it, was that a lot of our best-selling books are some of the worst offenders. And in the Christian world, we argue so much over doctrine. You know, like, what do you believe about this? Well, I believe X. Well, I believe Y. And you argue X and Y. And what we're trying to do with this book is get out of that. And instead of arguing doctrine, what I want to say is, okay, you can believe X if you want, but if you do, she's going to have a 38% lower orgasm rate. You know, <laughs> kind of takes the whole debate to a different level. <laughs> and when you actually look at the results, there are, there are certain of our best-selling books, in fact, probably the, the highest-selling books, which are actually the most problematic. Uh, what what is the uh, doctrine that leads to the thirty eight percent lower orgasm rate? Uh, <laughs> um, I was making that number off the top of my head. I can tell you one that leads oh, to thirty eight percent higher. I can tell you thirty eight percent higher rate of sexual pain because that one's kind of interesting. Yeah, so, so, I mean, I'd be interested to know like what uh, if you can give us specifics about like what certain beliefs and what certain effects yeah. have you studied and correlated. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm not the numbers person. I'm the writing person and we have so many numbers in this book and I'm always afraid I'm going to quote one wrong. So I will do one that I actually know offhand, off, off by heart, okay, which is actually important. Um, and let me back up. Did you know that evangelical Christians have twice the rate of vaginismus as a general population? How many of you know what erectile dysfunction is? Everybody, right? We all know what erectile dysfunction is. Among people in their 20s and 30s, vaginismus is more common and is more difficult. <laughs> to deal with. And yet most of us don't even know the word for it. Vaginismus is primary sexual pain that women feel when um, the vaginal walls, the muscles of the vaginal walls contract, which make it's involuntary. Um, so they can't relax them consciously. And it makes penetration very painful, if not difficult or impossible. And about in our survey, I, I believe the number was around 22%. Again, I'm not the numbers person. It could, might be 24, it might be 21, but I think it's something like 22% of, of um, Christian women reported experiencing vaginismus at some point and 7% to the extent that penetration was impossible. And yet we don't talk about this. And we have twice, this is twice as high as the general population. And so one of the big research questions we had was why? Because people have known about this for years. If you look at gynecological journals in the 1970s, they talk about how religiosity is a main marker for vaginismus. And so what we wanted to figure out was what is it about 
evangelical Christianity that's causing it. And we identified the biggest thing, which is the ob- what we call the obligation sex message. So it's the belief that women are obligated to have sex with their husbands when their husbands want it. And when women believe that, their chance of experiencing sexual pain increases to almost the same statistical amount as if they had been sexually abused. So it's like that message, our body's experiencing that message as trauma. Because God made sex to be an intimate knowing of two people. You know, Genesis 4 tells us Adam knew his wife Eve. And I don't think that was a mistake that they used, that God used that word. It's, it's this longing to be connected. It's the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me. You know, sex is supposed to be a knowing of two people. And you can't know someone if you say to that person, your needs don't matter. You, get, you have to do what I want you to do. You're obligated to. And so in essence, sex becomes the biggest unknowing. We've turned sex from a knowing to an owing in the church. And that has devastating effects on women. And yet almost all of the evangelical bestsellers that we looked at, not all, but almost all, really stressed that. I actually have friends who experience that in their relationship and, uh, and it caused a lot of pain and a lot of confusion. And one of the things that they also experienced was a saying that they could not bring this to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, they could not talk about this because it was a, it was a serious problem in their marriage. And, um, so they were having marital conflict and other problems and they couldn't go to their pastor for pastoral advice because to disclose that was really shameful. And at one point they actually did. And the pastor's advice was he just came down hard on the wife. Like, what is your problem? Like, why can't you just, it's not like it's hard. Um, And it ended up actually being completely devastating to the, to the extent that both couples are divorced and also left the faith because it was so traumatizing for them. Yeah. I'm not, I've heard lots of stories like that. And I think one of the biggest issues is that our resources don't talk about sexual pain, but they're very, very firm that women um, love and respect, for instance, says there can't be any reason to say no, except for prayer and fasting, you know, based on first Corinthians seven and sex is one of the elements of respect that a wife must give her husband. And that must be unconditional. So no matter how he's treating you, you have to give him sex. Like Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music, for instance, says that during her period, this can be a very difficult time for him. So she should give him sexual favors to if, if he's uh, being tempted to watch pornography or during her postpartum period. Or if she's uh, simply not feeling her best, she can give him sexual favors so that he doesn't climb the walls. And again, the emphasis is on the man's needs and not the woman's needs. And so her needs aren't even recognized. And when we're constantly told as women that he has a need that you will never understand, which is what many of these books say, you know, you'll never understand your husband's need, then no matter what we are going through, we assume that he has it still worse. And that's what can cause a lot of these really dysfunctional problems in our sex lives. We've gotten away from sex as this beautiful, mutual, intimate, pleasurable knowing of two people. And we've created this entitlement complex around it. Um, and that, that really makes it very ugly for many women and for guys too, actually. What strikes me hearing you describe that is also the, the fear that 
is sort of laced in all of that articulation. If you don't do this, then he's going to watch pornography and Mm -hmm. it's in part going to be your fault. Yeah. And that was another one of the beliefs that we measured uh, that was, that was very harmful. A woman should have sex to help her husband not watch porn. Every man's battle uh, calls women the methadone for their husband's sex addictions. So you know, once he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Or your wife can be your methadone when you feel your temperature rising. And calling a woman methadone for his sex addictions, I, I'm not sure what they were thinking. Even as an analogy, it's a really bad one because who uses methadone? Or why do you use methadone? You use methadone because what I really want is opioids, but I can't have those. And so I'll settle for these to make me satiated enough so I don't go for the hard stuff. So what you're telling your wife is, I don't actually want you. I want that other hot woman, but I'll settle for you so that I don't lust after her. And it just, yeah, it's like having sex under threat. And that's what a lot of our resources have told us. And and I guess one of the things is that methadone is designed to allow an opioid addict to wean off uh, the drugs. So is the implication there that uh, if your wife is, or if, if a man's wife is going to be the, the methadone for, for her spouse, that the man is then weaning off sex? Is the man weaning off his wife uh, by <laughs> using her as methadone? I mean, surely, surely the trajectory of this uh, leads to divorce. Uh, it leads to celibacy in in a relationship. Even just the trajectory doesn't seem to lead anywhere helpful at all, let alone the analogy. It's absolutely crazy. And yet that book was a runaway bestseller. And that's what all guys read to help them deal with lust. Not all, I shouldn't say that, but 4 million copies sold in that series of books. And what did that teach? It taught that Men lust, and so they need to bounce their eyes so that they don't see women and don't look at women because women are a temptation. And instead, they have to take all their sexual energy and transfer that sexual energy to their wife. So I'm not quite sure what single guys are supposed to do. But if you're married and you're transferring all this energy to your wife, what it's really saying is that male sexuality equals the objectification of women. And so our goal is to only objectify one woman for the rest of your life, which I find highly problematic. (laughs) And if you're going to bounce your eyes all the time, I I did a survey on, this wasn't part of the book. I just did this for fun on Twitter. And I asked women, have you ever been in a church situation where a man will not look at you or talk to you because you're female? And about 70% of, of women said, yes. Like so many women said, you know what? I run a praise team, the worship leader's there. I'm standing with my husband and the praise, the worship leader is talking to my husband who's telling me things. It's like a three-way conversation because he won't look or talk to me. And it's just ridiculous because Jesus didn't stop looking at women. Like the, the solution to lust is not to stop looking at women. The solution to lust is to truly see women, to see them as image bearers of God. And when we do that, then we don't objectify them. To bounce your eyes is still to see her as dangerous. It's still to see her as merely as an object, as merely a body. And that's not what the kingdom of God should look like. You know, even, even the apostle Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. He didn't say bounce your eyes. 
<laughs> yeah, the Billy Graham rule is something that's very common. And it, it's a it's a very hard experience for women on multiple levels. But fundamentally, it's it's funny to me how worldly it is, quote unquote, as a concept, because you know, the, the world says run to women because they are sexual objects. And then the church then says run away from women because they are sexual objects. Mm-hmm. So we didn't actually transform that. We just inverted a paradigm without actually <laughs> subverting that by changing the way that we see women. So I, I'm wondering if you talk about the Billy Graham rule or have run any kind of surveys or statistics on that for your book. We didn't specifically look at that. Um, we did, we, we just took that whole lust thing <laughs> and took it apart and looked at the effects on women's shame as well. You know, how they feel about their bodies. Um, Cause that's a huge part of why women don't like sex. I remember when my daughter was 11, my youngest daughter, a Sunday school teacher, uh, took her aside at the end of Sunday school one day and said, now that she was developing, she was going to have to watch what she wore to church so that she didn't, you know, cause adult men to stare at her chest. Well, I couldn't get that girl to go to church for the next month because she was so grossed out that men were going to be looking at her chest. And that was highly inappropriate to do to my daughter. Um, And this woman, it was a woman, she meant well, I know, but these are the messages that girls are so often given is your body is dangerous. And so then how, how can you embrace your body and how can you have fun with your body once you're married? Going back to the every man's battle thing, which... I never read. Uh, I didn't grow up in the church, so I'm probably an anomaly for that reason. But is there a sense, I mean, this is less like a guess, and but you'll have more insight into this than me. But like, I, I've always suspected that this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you publish these books that's like, you are a man and you are just an animal and you just like want to do everything and everyone, like, you know, and then like this, this stuff gets like just put in their head from such a young age. And presumably this is like to protect them from the dangers of lust, but it creates this like image of the self, which is like mm-hmm. horribly out of control and like way overly sexualized. Uh, and this leads to, I mean, as I see it, uh, this, is, this is kind of self-fulfilling. So men believe this about themselves and then they feel like they need to avoid all interaction with women, all looking at women all together. So they never actually learn how to like, interact with a woman in a normal sense because they expect Mm -hmm. to be sexually aroused upon every single interaction. And then I feel like this leads to like the expectation that like any kind of interaction is therefore sexualized. I just kind of see this direct line of like, once you put that idea in like young men's heads, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the, the heads of like young teenagers, then this creates this slew of extra problems that Mm -hmm. if we just maybe didn't have that kind of anthropology, maybe we wouldn't think that way, or maybe it wouldn't be that way, but maybe I'm ascribing too much stuff to like ideas here, but. No, I don't think so at all. That's actually, and we're actually testing that on a men's survey right now, but what we found in our focus groups is that women who were married to men who became Christians later in life had far less of a problem with this belief than women who were married to men who grew up in youth group. And What's happened? I mean, I married a man who became a Christian at 19. My my oldest daughter married a man who became a Christian at 20. So they didn't grow up with these messages. And this was just, they, they didn't even understand it. They're like, what, you can't talk to a woman? What's wrong with you? Like, they're just people. It's not a big deal. It's totally not a big deal, buddy. But that's not how we treat it in the church. And I think one of the biggest problems is that we are conflating sexual attraction with lust. 
what you hear all the time is it's it's like there's these moving sidewalks, you know, at airports. And it's like the beginning is sexual attraction and the end is lust. And once you get on, you can't get off. But that's not the way it really works. You can be attracted to someone and have that mean absolutely nothing and then go on with your day, <laughs> right? Like, like you can notice a woman's beautiful or that no, like notice she's got cleavage and it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't need to mean anything more than that. That's just a biological reaction. You haven't sinned. But instead what we've taught guys is, as soon as you notice her cleavage, you're going to be tempted to lust. And once you're tempted, well, you basically sinned already. And so it creates this hypervigilance where they go through life trying not to see cleavage. And of course, as soon as you're trying not to see cleavage, what are you going to see? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't look at the pink. Don't think about pink elephants. Well, you're going to think about the pink elephant, right? So, I mean, it really is a problem. And I think if we just normalize the fact that sexual attraction is not a sin and you can notice someone's attractive and then not do anything with that. And the other thing is that, and maybe some of the women can chime in on this here, women can be visual too. <laughs> we talk about how it's only guys who are visual, but increasingly studies of, of MRI studies have shown the more recent ones in the last few years that women are visual as well, just in different ways, not necessarily the same stimulus, but, but the same parts of the brain light up with sexual arousal. It's just, it, it might work differently, but we're still visual. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. That that's definitely kind of one of these damaging myths that's just been perpetuated. This idea that women are kind of just not interested in <laughs> appearance at all, and that it's not a factor. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that feeds into this idea that they're the ones that have to kind of completely cover up and are responsible for men's lust and so on. It, that was really interesting. That statistic you shared about uh, kind of men who'd grown up in youth groups and the kind of specific problems that kind of occur as a result of yeah, I guess being fed some of these myths uh, versus men that didn't, how that kind of plays out in marriages. I was also kind of interested how you think some of this, some of these kind of damaging and uh, quite misogynistic tropes mirror things happening elsewhere in society. I'm thinking of um, sort of groups within men's rights movements, like incel movements and um, pickup artists, which kind of use this same misogynistic rhetoric that basically see women as objects. Uh, and to what extent there's kind of a Christian subculture within that, whether that's kind of spilling over into certain evangelical circles, just whether that's something you've encountered in your research at all. Most definitely. And it tends to come when I talk about the obligation sex message, because that's the one that's really the trigger. But I have a lot of, of critics, um, a lot of commenters on the blog, a lot of trolls, et cetera, who, who say that I'm a man basher and that I'm a man hater because I don't believe all men lust. You know, I actually think most guys don't. And we're measuring it right now in our men's survey. And that's what we're finding as well. Um, even the rate of porn use is, is lower than we think it is. Like, I actually think most guys are really good, honorable guys. <laughs> And yet, because of that, I'm called a misandrist, you know, someone who hates men, um, which I find really funny. But what you'll notice in so many of our books is that we, we looked at 13 of the best-selling evangelical sex and marriage books. And then we took our, the best-selling secular marriage book as a control study. Um, and we have a, a rubric that we developed of 12 markers of, of healthy sexuality, and we applied this rubric to all of the books. One thing that the secular book did right that no other Christian book did was discuss a certain word. <laughs> and this word was never mentioned in our Christian books. And it was the word consent. There is no 
robust conversation of consent. Now, The Gift of Sex by the Penners, I must say, <laughs> certainly did a really good job of talking about how women can say no and that women should be the ones who are initiating penetration and boundaries in marriage. That's certainly the point of the book. But in terms of a robust conversation of what consent really looks like, our, our books don't do that. Whereas John Gottman, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, our secular book, had like pages on it. But we don't talk about consent. What we do talk about is lots of incidences of rape that aren't even called that or that are downplayed. Like, um, let me tell you one story from The Act of Marriage. So Tim LaHaye, Beverly LaHaye wrote The Act of Marriage. Um, it was the premier sex book for anybody who got married between 1976 and 1995, and even since then. But it was like the go-to book. And it had a story of this young woman who's getting married and her aunt comes to her and tells her sex is terrible and she better be careful and watch out because it's awful. And Tim LaHaye is bemoaning the fact that the aunt is talking so terribly about sex. And he goes on to explain that Aunt Matilda on her wedding night was raped while she was kicking and screaming by her husband, who was much older than she was. And throughout their marriage, um, this happened. And so she believes that marriage is just legalized rape. And he said how sad it was that Matilda never understood how sex was. And he talked about Matilda and her equally unhappy husband. So here's a man who's been raping his wife and he calls her, he calls him equally unhappy as his rape victim. And this book went through four different revisions and nobody bothered to take that anecdote out. And that was not the only one we found. That story is ex exceedingly disturbing. Uh, but there's a part of me that is equally concerned that this is also becoming a normal part of sexualization in secular culture as well. Uh, so a friend of mine that I studied with uh, now studies, uh, her, her research is pornography and trends in pornography. Uh, and she's noted the massive increase in simulated rape pornography um, mm -hmm. or role-playing pornography in that, in that sense. Uh, and it seems that a whole bunch of these exceedingly unhealthy tropes, I guess you like, if you, we could call them of Christian marriage or of strict insular marriage that we are discussing have actually become tropes for porn. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, is there a relationship there? Is, is one feeding the other or is this, is there a cultural sense of, well, these are things that are taboo in our culture. So the porn industry is going to push against those because it generates more controversy or it generates more people clicking on those things. I don't know the thinking behind it, but how does that feedback, does that create a feedback loop uh, for Christians as well, I guess? I think it does. I think the obligation sex message, which is basically coercion and marital rape has been there for quite a while. But I think what's happening is that even in our newer books, this message is still being propagated. And, and we're not telling women that your needs matter. We're telling women that only his needs matter. Not every book does this. Again, you know, we studied, we studied 13. There were certain that were quite good. Gift of sex, boundaries in marriage, sacred marriage, they all treated sex fairly well. 
But a lot of the books just simply did not give women any chance to say no. And I think when so many of our authors in our culture, they're growing up in this porn culture, we know how many people watch porn. I'm sure that that is informing a lot of this language. And when, you know, um, one of the things I've noticed in the last, let's say, 10 years is that when pastors want to address sex issues in the church, they tend to do it in a way that is stressing, let's just have sex more. So they'll do like, hey, couples, we're going to give you the seven day sex challenge, right? Like you have sex every day for seven days and it'll be amazing and it'll be stupendous and all of this. And we've saw there was one pastor, I forget who it was, who put a bed up on the church and like did a Anyway, it was, it was bizarre, um, weird stuff, right? So, um, we've got, we've got these kinds of challenges and what they're missing is that what we found in the great sex rescue is like frequency is not the problem. <laughs> like all these pastors are just trying to get women to have more sex, right? Just have more sex, have more sex, have more sex. Have you ever heard of the 72 hour rule? Anyone? No. Okay. Maybe you're all too young. Just be grateful. But it's, it's all throughout our books. Um, if you go to women's conferences, you'll hear the 72 hour rule marriage conferences. You know, you're supposed to have sex every 72 hours. It's in sheet music, power of praying wife, every man's battle. Um, you got to fill up his cup every 72 hours, like this kind of thing. Okay. Well, I was trying to figure out where that got started. So we scoured the medical research, like, is there any research that says that men have greater rates of testicular pain at hour 73 or something? And we couldn't find anything at all. And all of these books footnote each other for the 72 hour rule. And I finally found the source, which was James Dobson in 1977 said it, but for no reason, really. But this is the approach that we tend to take is just do it more, just do it more. But what we found is that frequency is like a thermometer. It's not a thermostat. Like frequency tells you what's going on in the marriage, but frequency in and of itself doesn't actually create a great marriage. Frequency is the least important variable when you're looking at whether or not the couple is happy, like sexual quality and marital relationship matters more. And yet we're pushing frequency. And when you look at totally sexless marriages, I always used to teach women that, hey, it's wrong to withhold sex. Don't do that. You know, that's a sin. You got to figure out what's going on and how you can like sex more. But what we realized in our research is marriages don't just turn sexless for no reason. <laughs> there are five big things. If marriages are sexless, there's going to be at least two of these issues present, which is she doesn't reach orgasm. Um, they, she doesn't feel emotionally close to him during sex. So she's feeling used their marital quality is terrible, he's using porn, or there's some major sexual dysfunction. And so it's not like it just happens out of the blue where she just decides, nah, I'm done with sex. <laughs> no, it's like something else is going on. And so instead of addressing frequency, we should look at what that something else is. Because sex is supposed to reflect our relationship. It's not supposed to just be the only thing that's holding us together. It's supposed to tell the truth about what's really happening between us. Yeah, thanks for that, Sheila. And I really appreciate um, your research and your book, uh, just to be able to be to talk about sex and to be open um, to seeing like the lies that we've believed. And I also just wonder um, what is or how is a better way forward to be able um, to talk about these issues um, around sex in the church? Um, I know like 
um, you had mentioned how um, a lot of times it's not said that women are also visual too. Because I'm interested in the topic of shame, I've like had talks on shame and like women have come up to me afterwards and they, you know, they ask me like, oh, why, why didn't you talk more about like shame in regards to um, like sexuality? And so I feel like I am such like clueless in how to even talk about it. Um, but it's so, you know, related to shame. So I just wanted to know what you would suggest or how you would suggest to even start the conversation. I believe we have to go back to what biblically sex is. Emerson Egerton, Love and Respect, says that sex is about a husband's physical release, that a husband needs physical release through sexual intimacy. And that's really the way he frames sex, that it's just about physical release. That's not the way the Bible frames it. You know, scriptures frame, it's it's intimate, it's mutual. That's what the first Corinthians seven passage is all about, that it's totally mutual. We know from Song of Songs, it's supposed to be pleasurable. So it's mutual, intimate, and pleasurable. And that means that it's life-giving. It isn't something which is soul-crushing. This is something which brings life, which makes you feel closer. And we need to look at some of the ways we commonly talk about sex and then talk about them differently. One of the things we do at the end of each chapter in our book is we do a rescuing and reframing. So for instance, instead of saying all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, you could say, Many people struggle with lust, often men more than women, but women too. But lust is not a battle that you can't win. With the Holy Spirit, you can defeat this. And the way that you do it is by seeing others as being made in the image of God. Right? Like, and, and that's just what we do with all these things. Instead of saying um, he has a need for sex, you can say people need sex. <laughs> Sometimes the felt need is for the physical side of sex. Sometimes the felt need is still for the emotional side of sex, but both of you need sex. And so let's figure out how to make it as good as possible so that you each feel loved and affirmed in that act, <laughs> you know, and, and just talk about it in a more healthy way. I think one of the biggest damages that we do is we do talk about it in such gendered ways that he needs it. She doesn't, he's visual. She's not, he has a libido. She doesn't, it's just not true. I mean, in, in just under 60% of marriages, he has the higher sex drive, but in just over 20, it's shared. And in, in just about 20, she has the higher sex drive. So if we're always talking about sex as if he needs it and she doesn't, we're leaving a huge number of couples out of the picture. So let's just have a much more nuanced and healthy conversation about this instead of thinking of it purely utilitarian or transactional or gendered. <laughs> Uh, I feel like a lot of the metaphors that are operative for sexual desire are negative metaphors. It's like people are bubbling up. They need release. It's like, you know, it's all like dangerous things. And, um, uh, you know, this this reminds me of this like myth that like basically before you're married, you view sexual arousal and sexual desire as totally negative. You just got to bury it as much as possible and then just wait until you're married and then you can just like be free. Um, but it doesn't seem like, you know, if we're, if people are still using metaphors of release, like, which is a negative metaphor in my mind, uh, then it sounds like those negative views of, of sexual arousal are carrying into marriage. Um, and sexual arousal is still something to be done away with by, uh, the objectified woman. Um, but I wonder if you can say more about like, 
the myth that like you can just basically like we can just view sexual arousal as negative and then after marriage we can just flip a switch and all of a sudden we feel positive about it it certainly doesn't work i know that's what we're trying to do it certainly doesn't work and i think the way that we often see sex is kind of like you know when you go and eat at a really greasy diner and you're the whole purpose of eating is not to actually enjoy eating it's just you're hungry and so you're going to figure out how much you can eat and how fast you can eat it so that you can see how long you go before you're hungry again. It's like being hungry is a problem. And so I'm just going to shovel as much food in as I can without really experiencing it, you know, because it's just this need that has to be satiated. And I think that's the message that we often have about sex or that's the picture of it. Again, not to pick on love and respect, but I remember this one quote where he's describing a mother talking to her daughter and her daughter doesn't really want sex. And the mother says, why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? And I just found this really funny because anyone who thinks sex should feel good for women would not advertise it on the basis that it takes so little time. Um <laughs> But this was supposed to be the selling feature. And again, it's just seeing sex as you just kind of let him use you and not as something which you experience together, which is probably why we have a 47 point orgasm gap, like 95% of men orgasm almost always or always, but only about 48% of women do. And I think that's because we don't say that women have desires and, and sexual, um, sexual appetites and needs as well. We only talk about men's. And then this super quick sex seems normal. <laughs> as a final question, I'm wondering if, if you could speak to some of the uh, implications of your research uh, and, and your insights uh, for recent evangelical sex scandals, uh, whether it's infidelity or sexual abuse. Uh, I, I wonder if you could speak to some of that. I think in our evangelical resources, we have this image of the insatiable man. He's an animal. He can't control himself. And so it's up to women to control him. And so if a woman is not doing her job, either because the wife doesn't have enough sex or because the women around the man dress too immodestly, then what can you expect? And I think we just don't value how dehumanizing it is for a woman to grow up in the evangelical culture and to hear so much of this talk. And so when women come forward and say, my boss tried to kiss me, the thought is, well, that's not that big a deal. He only tried, he didn't do it. Like, what are you complaining about? I don't think there's a realization of how Basically, if someone tries to kiss you and they're in an authority position, what that tells her is you don't value me as the person. You just want to use me. And that's very traumatizing. Even if, quote unquote, nothing happened, it's still a traumatizing experience to live through. And we know, um, you know, that was Bill Hybels that I'm thinking of him with that particular one. But we know there's many worse ones. Ravi Zacharias who looks like was actually sex trafficking. Um, I can't think of anything really worse than that. Or Carl Lentz, all of the other big ones that have come to mind recently. But again, you see this pattern of 
men who aren't able to control themselves and no one around them seems to say anything about it. And when women start speaking up, you assume that they're just temptresses or seductresses or it's their fault. And I would just like to live in an evangelical culture where it's expected that men will respect women, not just that women will respect men, where we can expect men to act like Jesus did and that that isn't considered naive (laughs) and where we can expect to be treated like real people. And I think if we live in that kind of culture, I think women would feel a lot more seen. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for joining us and for being a part of this wonderful conversation and this long overdue conversation in the evangelical world. Well, thank you. And I hope people enjoy the Great Sex Rescue. Seriously, like it is the largest survey that's ever been done of Christian women. And uh, we're really proud of it. So I hope it helps a lot of people. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.